When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. This is Sam Tatum, author of Evolutionary Ideas, Unlocking Ancient Innovation to Solve Tomorrow's Challenges, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Sam Tatum to talk about his book, Evolutionary Ideas, Unlocking Ancient Innovation to Solve Tomorrow's Challenges, published by Harriman House. Sam Tatum is Global Head of Behavioral Science at Ogilvy. His passion is understanding human behavior, and his experience comes from organizational, industrial psychology, and advertising strategy. From New York to Nairobi, Sam has led behavior change projects across virtually every category and continent. Today, he leads a global team of talented psychologists and behavioral economists to develop interventions and shape the communications of some of the world's most influential brands and organizations. And interesting fact... A first draft of this book to his publisher contained a typo in the book's title. Sam, congratulations on Evolutionary Ideas, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks so much, Douglas. Off to a rough start there, but we got there in the end. Yes, yes. Well, I would I would have never known. I didn't see any typos. And <laughs> When you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast and you get to read all these books, you do notice a few typos, and, and that's okay. That's okay. So you are in the Sydney, Australia area. And as we speak, and I'm on the East Coast of the United States, so as is not always the case, as is always the case, when I'm interviewing an author in Australia, we have to do it at a different time. So as we record this, it's 6 p.m. on Thursday evening here on the East Coast, and it's 8 a.m. Friday morning there in uh, Sydney, Australia. And over the years, I've you know marveled at the fact that I'm talking to someone from the future. <laughs> But I've given up asking, you know, because naturally I would say, oh, well, Sam, tell me what's what's going to happen. What's what's the future contain? But I never got the right answer. And just so everybody knows why I'm not going to ask this question anymore, this is the answer I was always looking for. Well, um, everyone has a flying car. Entire meals come in pill form. And the earth is ruled by damn dirty apes. That's the future I want to know about. 
Sounds like Australia already. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, Austin Powers. So, um, <laughs> you know, I had him come into the uh, uh, studio here and record it. But um, no, I'm just kidding. Now, I noticed your book was endorsed by, you know, a number of heavy hitters. Come on. But includes guy I've interviewed twice, Near Eyal. Oh, my goodness. His books have actually caused me to change. In other words, he, he wrote uh, – his first book was Hooked, about how yeah. to build addictive products, which uh, the joke is that every executive in Silicon Valley has a copy of his book on the shelf. But he'll say, yeah, but they already know how to do that. <laughs> and then uh, his other book, I guess maybe written out of guilt, was about was called uh, – Indistractable. Indistractable. Just, just amazing. And thanks to Nier, I uh, initially I took uh, the social media apps off my phones, and in the meantime, I've ultimately just deactivated my Facebook account. <laughs> so mm, mm, mm. it's uh, it's 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 very uh, very interesting. And then yeah, the forward to the book by Rory Sutherland, who I've had the honor of interviewing. His book Alchemy and the you know reading his book was an adventure, and interviewing him was an adventure. I think that's the interview where I spoke the least. <laughs> because he just he just runs with it, and it was a great interview, and uh, it's a, interesting. His book has been mentioned by you know a lot of listeners, but also authors. They mm. talked about how much how much they liked his book, and you, I guess uh, you've been really influenced by him, and you both worked Absolutely. for Ogilvy. Yeah, I've, I've been fortunate to work with Rory for, for many years, and he's a huge huge influence on 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 this book and my thinking and 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 the category that we work within. So I was sort of. Um, really touched with the forward that he wrote and and I mean we're, we're close friends and colleagues but a wonderful influence on, on me in the book and similarly near I remember writing to near I met him in in London a couple of years ago but I remember years ago starting out in advertising sitting in I was on a work trip to Melbourne sitting in a cafe just paging through hooked and if we look at both hooked and indistractable sort of deconstructing Two ways of, of of creating better habits and starting to to to, to change distractions and very much a, an architectural perspective just shows how we can do both if we do it on purpose and understand what are the what are the levers that we're trying to pull here. So so two big influences on me certainly. Yes, yes, and I noticed. Uh, so you work for Ogilvy, and that's right. I'm an alumnus of J. Walter Thompson, New York. So I appreciate you quoting more than once James Webb Young. The uh, legendary mm. 20th century ad man who worked for J. Walter Thompson and wrote uh, a book, uh, I think he first published it in 1940, called A Technique for Producing Ideas that I'm That's right. sure you're really familiar with. In fact, you may have, that, that may have been where you got the quotes from. Certainly, and, and when you look at, I mean, they're, they're t timeless, timeless quotes, I think, and that's part of the part of the, um, the, the the theme of the book. Um, certainly, when it comes to the creation of ideas, uh, a big part of um, evolutionary ideas is looking at sort of a systematic approach to creativity. Um, and sometimes, in you, you might imagine, in the advertising field, field or, or creative industry, that sort of uh, that we romanticize off the wall thinking and sort of. Uh, mad magicians in a dark garage that come up with a sort of a light bulb moment. And so thinking about ideas of more like construction than creation was a, was a, could be seen as a deviation. And, and James Webb Young talks about the creation of ideas, just like the creation of automobiles, mm -hmm. um, that we can, we can think about it in a, in a structured approach. So wonderful to be able to sort of lean on, uh, lean on that, um, to, to help to, to, to draft my argument too. Yes. I remember it. Jay Walter, the the expression the really good creatives had was tight briefs liberate. That's right. 
So, and you talk about that a good bit there. And it also ties in with uh, three really phenomenal books I've had on the show over the years about creativity. All of them adhere to that as well. It's not lightning in a bottle. It's following a structured system. Yes. So I want to quote from a couple sections. I I, I couldn't resist. I I need to quote from this one part in uh, Rory's uh, forward. (laughs) He he just doesn't disappoint. (laughs) So, but there's one part where he says, the role of marketing and advertising, which is also a game of experimentation, variation, and selection, is an essential and often ignored handmaiden to innovation. Successes in marketing seem obvious in retrospect, but are rarely obvious at the time. It is for this reason that we not only need to experiment more, but also benefit from evolutionary pattern recognition in deciding what to test. Evolution does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And then I want to jump over to another page from your prologue, which is page XX. You didn't know I spoke Roman, did you, Sam? (laughs) There's one section where you write, I decided to write this book to illuminate the vast opportunities the fields of behavioral science and evolutionary psychology offer contemporary innovation. Through this book, my ambition is to help us spend less time developing expensive and high-risk solutions and more time embracing and imaginatively executing psychological solutions that have been road-tested over time. I will share a process that can be learned, yet still applied magically. You are about to embark on a journey to identify patterns of evolved psychological solutions. You will see that once you know what you're looking for, these solutions can be consciously redeployed to solve some of the most important challenges you face. Through them, you will find a faster, more efficient, and more effective approach to innovate creatively. And then finally, I want to jump over to the next page where you write, this book is for problem solvers. While I work in the creative field, it's not just a book for advertisers or marketing departments, although it's extremely useful there. Its aim is to provide prompts for people looking to solve old problems in new ways, or indeed, new problems in old ways. And finally, I want to quote from page one, and I don't want you to tell the listener what I'm talking about, as you didn't when you wrote this. (laughs) Let's not give it away, but I, I want to read this and ask the listener to Think who, what this product might be and what company it is, and, and then we'll do the big reveal. So the book starts, in a secret laboratory hidden deep within Silicon Valley, a revolutionary idea is born. Nurtured by a small team of rock star scientists and shrouded in secrecy, it is an innovation with the potential to transform technology and human interaction with it. Decades ahead of its time, on 4 April 2012, when the project was first announced, it was heralded as such. Time magazine would go on to declare it product of the year, with everyone from celebrities and CEOs to presidents and global royalty wanting a piece of it. The Simpsons dedicated an entire episode to it, and Vogue even gave it a 12-page spread. It was an innovation that captured the imagination. This is a story about one of the most highly anticipated technology breakthroughs of all time. When first demonstrated publicly, it was revealed as courageously as the innovation itself, brought to life by skydivers jumping from a Zeppelin, rooftop bikers, and abseilers down to the side of the Moscone Exhibition Complex in San Francisco. No expense was spared. On 27 June, pre-orders were offered to a select few, and from spring 2013, it was made available to the public. But even then, 
not the open market. Enthusiastic shoppers were asked to pledge their case on Twitter to buy it at a $1,500 price tag, no less. Two years later, it was made available to all. Then came the biggest announcement yet. As quickly as it arrived, it was going away. Sam Tatum, what was the product and what the hell went wrong? That was, what a great introduction. Well, the product was Google Glass. Um, that was such a um, obviously a, a hyped piece of technology, um, but fundamentally just brought in existing pieces of tech in and, and didn't cross uh, the sort of the human chasm. I think I write that it sort of it, just the concern of live streaming one trip to the bathroom might be enough to, to cancel an entire product. And I and I and I use Google Glass as a as a bit of an introductory um, I- example into into our appetite for revolutionary and radical innovation um, and and how sometimes this desire to create something the world has never seen means that we can forget some of the simple elements of human interaction and, and our evolved psychology. Um, and, and that's a big part of the book. I mean, evolutionary ideas is, is obviously as a, as, a, as a title directly countering revolutionary ideas. Yes. Uh, and, and, and why this sort of this appetite, this insatiable fight for, for, for radical can sometimes trip us up. But in actual fact, success of radical innovation is far rarer than we might think. Yes. And uh, again, I couldn't resist. This is one other thing I want to quote from page four. You say, when you first saw the cover of this book, you may be forgiven for having read it as revolutionary ideas. And you go on to write, our brains have a habit of seeing what they expect. And with our modern day culture's fetish for the radical and novel, we end up expecting little else. In life and business, our obsessions are a similar search for the radical and revolutionary. From weight loss miracles and viral campaigns to the launches of mega brands and the search for venture capital unicorns, we are hungry for novel and game-changing ideas. The field of marketing remains particularly obsessed with the mm. big and the new, it's believed almost universally that radical and revolutionary innovation is what it takes to compete and win. Sam Tatum, though, what what is the problem with that? There's a few elements built up into this. I think one is one is around ego. <laughs> the more, oh, right. the greater, what was I thinking? The greater, that's right. Well, the greater our status, the more we think we need to to come up with big ideas. I mean, CEOs um, sort of talking about the twiddling on a checkout page feel like that's probably below their status. Whereas these are some of the elements um, that are actually sort of can be most critical to the success of an organization. So one is sort of big roles require big thinking. Um, another element is is a, just a natural human optimism, this uh, assumption that this time it will be different. Uh, optimism, uh, uh, sort of an optimism bias, is a is a well documented element of our of our psychology, and it's really important that when the chips are down, that we have a sense of optimism to keep us hopeful and I mean and 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 fighting for life. I mean, it's a great part of of our adaptability. But when it comes to innovation, it can trip us up. This sort of assumption that that where others have failed, we will succeed, um, is is it sort of ends us walking down a, a, a dangerous garden path. I mean, just look at Vegas, uh, a city that's built on the spoils of gambling, and everyone sort of turns up thinking that this time it will be different. <laughs> but the final element, and I think the most important piece for, for me on this, is is an element of uh, of proportionality. 
Um, again, in, in the, the realms of psychology, we can call this a proportionality bias or a proportionality heuristic. And that is that we have an assumption that big outcomes require big inputs. Yes. So if we're to look at the physical world, it sort of makes sense, right? If you hear a loud bang, we assume that it needed a loud input by which to make that sound. You drop a plate, it smashes. It's sort of a natural transference of energy. But in the psychological realm, it can be very different. Uh, sort of big, big outcomes can be achieved by small changes. Um, we have this assumption that big problems need big ideas. But more importantly, for, 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 for evolutionary ideas, this assumption that novel problems also need novel ideas. Mm -hmm. And while much has been written about small changes creating big outcomes, what I sort of focus on in, in, in this book is that actually what might appear to be a, a novel problem that you're faced with isn't necessarily a, a, a challenge that hasn't already been solved before, even if it's in another category or industry. Um, so the work that we do, and, and, and you, you, you picked up Rory's quote, it's a wonderful quote that's bolded in the book, um, evolution doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. I just think that's a, a, a wonderful encapsulation that we can we can we can find these evolved patterns of solutions and apply them to what might feel like novel challenges that we're faced with every day, but have actually been solved by others before us. And that's really the the, the, the crux of the book. Yes, there's a great quote from John Templeton, the British investor. Mm. The four most expensive words in the English language are this time this it's time different. It will be different. <laughs> <laughs> For all you folks in Vegas, all the, <laughs> all the listeners in Vegas probably work there. They know better than to go gambling. And it reminds me of once talking. I was had uh, we had this economic development client years ago, and uh, he, he, he was the new director. And we came in with a number of ideas uh, of you know what they needed to be doing to try to uh, get the word out and pr promote what they were doing. And these were some concepts that had worked well uh, with the client in the past, and, and it was sort of a you know uh, things that worked well back in the ad, back mm. in the ad day, and I remember this guy saying, "But I've already seen these kind of ideas before. Yeah. I want something new." <laughs> well, well, these these ideas work well, but I just I just remember that. So I've I've brushed up against that, and one of the things that was made so clear in your book is about this this whole idea of the solution might already be out there. And mm. actually, you said uh, there, there's. You said there's two classic myths of revolutionary innovation, which you mentioned. Big problems need big solutions, and new problems need, wait for it, new solutions. <laughs> but speaking of uh, revolutionary innovation, which you say is – I mean, it's one thing to say it's rarer than you might think. You go on to prove it. And speaking mm. of revolutions, let's talk about the communists in uh, <laughs> Soviet yeah, Union. This is, this is an unbelievable study – they did about innovation. Can you talk about that? That's right. A, a fascinating story by sort of brought to life through a gentleman called Genrik Altshuler, mm -hmm. a, a Russian innovator that at a young age was um, uh, sort of recognized by the, by the, 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 the Russian Navy in the Stalinist period um, and brought in to help really drive innovation for, for the Navy and, and work from the patent office. Um, but as and he, then he as was he, really recognized by Stalin, right? Well, that's right. That was that was the unfortunate, uh, the unfortunate moment. <clears throat> 
Then I can, I can, I can absolutely. But but before he had a sort of a bit of a, a bit of a, 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 a mingle with Stalin, um, what he did was see patents come across his desk every day, and realize actually that many of the the, the solutions that were being generated across across the navy were actually um, tackling very similar challenges and coming up with very similar similar solutions. Later, what he did with a with a group of um, colleagues, they assessed over two hundred thousand patents and categorize them into levels of inventiveness uh, what is actually sort of genuinely um, sort of net new innovation and what is just the replication of, a, of an existing solution and uh, uh, fundamentally they found that a, 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 about one percent of of the innovations through these patents was genuine innovation the rest was the ad- adaptation of existing solutions um, so it's a fascinating sort of deconstruction and 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 while we sort of think the glass is half full from the optimistic perspective when you do the numbers um, that the glass is the very sort of virtually empty um, and so, so, so Genrich um, went off to to create a, a model called Triz, mm-hmm. where they can start to map these patterns of solutions. Um, but but before we get there, let's 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 speak to Stalin because that is a bit of a hiccup in his journey. Well, and um, I have a feeling that at a, at a lighter level, sometimes people you know make suggestions and they are penalized. But, <laughs> but not right. the way this guy was. This is was. pretty tough. Well, what, what Altshuler did was send a letter to sort of recognizing this inefficiency within the Russian Navy. He sent a letter to, to Comrade Stalin saying, I've, I've stumbled across a better way in which to innovate. And, and actually, we're, we're, we're wasting time and effort um, with our current approach. And, and that was sort of received probably as well as you might expect. And he was, he was quickly tried and sent off to labor camp um, for, for, for several years. Um, so it didn't go down as well. No, and I don't mean to expected. laugh, but it's just it was so predictable. <laughs> and but it's also, I mean, think about how much fear there is in the work world, and people yes. are afraid to if they're working for an environment where there's a lot of fear and uh, you know uh, concern about it, where they're not where where their new ideas are definitely not welcome. Well, you're not always threatened with sleep deprivation torture as Altshuler as Altshuler was. No, um, but that's but exactly, you know that's an exactly idea, Sam. Maybe they could. Uh, not we could introduce this. <laughs> But what was what happened was so so at, at labor camp he was he was um, deprived of sleep and and, and tortured um, and he was sort of faced with this this challenge or the language of contradiction that he uses is how can I how can I sleep while stay awake uh, how can I he was sort of kept awake during the, the uh, all day and and kept awake all night how can I how can I sleep while staying awake and it sounds like an in, sort of an, an impossible contradiction. But what Altshuler did was um, actually working with a president, sort of a, a fellow prisoner. He fashioned uh, eyeballs out of a cigarette packet and, and charred pupils, uh, and his 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 prison cellmate sort of stuck them to the back of his closed eyelids. So as the guards walked past during the day, it looked like he was awake, um, but he was a, he was he was fundamentally sleeping. And and solving this impossible contradiction of staying awake and sleeping at the same time is a is a big sort of trigger moment to his Triz methodology. And, and Triz is a, a Russian acronym for the theory of inventive problem solving. And that is to innovate, we need to solve a contradiction. 
So just like we can stay awake and, and, and sleep at the same time, how do we make an umbrella that's big enough to cover the human body, yet small enough to fit in, the ba- in a handbag? You know, that's a contradiction that innovation needs to solve. How can we um, create a bulletproof jacket that stops a, stops a bullet, but is light enough for, for someone to possibly wear? I mean, that requires innovation. So this identification of contradictions is a really interesting interesting part of sort of the innovation journey. And what Altshuler and the TRIZ methodology does is begins to, to marry up these patterns of solutions. As I said, is up to 95 of the, of, of the innovations that we see in patents as sort of existing solutions, maybe just in other categories. Let's better match them up. And we're able to do that through the TRIZ methodology by focusing on these, these contradictions, like increasing the volume without changing the length or increasing the strength without altering the weight. I mean, these are wonderful challenges that innovation needs to solve. Right. And didn't he have like 40 rules that came out of all that analysis? That's right. So so, so they call this in TRIZ inventive principles. That's right. Okay. So if you think in, in biology, um, uh, we sort of look at different species of animals based on their features. Um, we can look at the presence of a spinal cord or gills, and we sort of categorize animals based on, on features. And in trees, they do the same. So, for example, the inventive principle of segmentation, um, so sort of breaking a unit up into individual subunits. So if you think of converting a couch or a lounge into a modular sofa, that's using segmentation. Turning curtains into Venetian blinds, that's using segmentation. So from a lounge to a curtain, we're sort of applying the same inventive solution. Um, There's one sort of, I think it's inventive principle number seven called nested doll. So if you imagine the classic Russian sort of nested doll or babushka doll, where you house uh, different units inside of 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 a large doll. And we see that across things like telescopic lenses, retractable tape measures, even nail polish that has the brush inside the bottle is Mm -hmm. an example of a nested doll. So through these 40 inventive principles, you can see hundreds of examples of these patterns of solutions, um, but we're able to simplify it into these these 40. And it's these 40 inventive principles that actually begins to match up to help solve contradictions. If you're faced with the challenge of increasing length without changing the volume, then maybe it's a good place to start with nested doll. Let's start there first and borrow from existing ideas that are out there rather than starting with a blank sheet of paper. Yes. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, let's get back to Sam Tatum. I can't resist. Page 56, (laughs) you've got another great story. 
And uh, you write, several years ago, I worked on a classic retail challenge. Mm. Our client was running a quarterly promotion for one of its higher value items, and we were tasked with increasing the attractiveness of the offer and boosting sales. It could be said that our challenge was, how can we change the perceived value of the product without changing the price? By the end of the promotion period, sales had risen by 56%. Sam, what kind of ninja mind trick did you do? Uh, well, it's a, it's a lovely example. We, we just spoke about trees and engineering solutions, so changing strength without changing weight. Now we're starting to look in the realm of sort of a psychological contradiction. Um, so how can we increase perceived value without changing its price? And that, that's the sort of the important step off here. So, so we were faced with a, a, a client that had an annual campaign um, for a, for a sales product, um, and oftentimes we receive we receive these briefs and it's sort of how can we find a, a new way of, of 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 speaking about the product benefits of talking about the product itself, um, and what we did just like a Tris methodology is start to look at well what might be some patterns in psychology um, that we can pull into this we can pull into our our, our approach here how can we use um, concepts like social norming to show that it's really popular um, mm -hmm. so that other people might buy it um, how can we use um, elements like scarcity to show how limited the offer is so people are, are encouraged to, to, to get on board a, a limited time offer so just as we can look at inventive principles in engineering through TRIZ we can look at these psychological inventive principles that the field of behavioral science is offering us um, but the, the, the biggest step change for us was actually found in a concept known as quantity anchoring. So studies conducted in a Ohio supermarket found that actually with, with tins of Campbell's soup, um, when they had, a, a, a I think, a, a 10 cent discount on the tins of soup, they sold a, an average of, of three units. Um, but what they did was then put in a, a quantity anchor. So they said, but a maximum in, in one store, they had a maximum of 12 cans allowed to be sold per, per person. And when they put this quantity anchor, they sold an average of seven. Um, so simply, simply changing the quantity anchor, um, they were able to change the sales. And, and what we found for this offer on every piece of advertising that we'd ever done, in the bottom left-hand corner of every, every ad in microscopic typeface, we had a maximum of four per customer. So we'd, we'd fundamentally buried what could be the most motivating part of the offer. <laughs> right. um, so we tested a series of different messages uh, and, and found that that was the, the, the most motivating, saying actually maximum of four per customer is, is the strongest signal <laughs> of value. Uh -huh. uh, if, if we were making too much profit, we could sell as many as we want. So it's just showing that there's, a, there's, a, there's an anchor on four and, and that led to a 56% increase in sales. And we drilled down to, a, I think, an 87% increase in, in four unit transactions so you're able to to see very clearly the the effect of of of, of that of that um of that approach and i love that as a, again it's sort of a, a, a systematic approach to um to solving a problem we go this is the contradiction increasing the perceived value without changing the price what are the the inventive principles from psychology that we can draw upon and how can we use those to start to build fresh value and, and new ideas and it doesn't mean um that um that every piece of advert advertising looks the same um we can have the same idea but execute it with flamboyance and brilliance and in a way that's right for the brand but we can we certainly don't need to start from scratch and that was a sort of a, a key moment in in certainly my career in, in embracing this kind of approach 
Yes, and you talk about the contradictions. I keep going back to Comrade Altshuler, who was sitting there <laughs> with his eyes open <laughs> while sleeping. Before we uh, wrap up, I wanted to spend some time talking about the really the latter half of the book, if that's okay, mm. the, the five most common psychological contradictions that are shared across business and, and yes. innovation and uh, and behavior change. And I just want to ask you a few questions about each one, if, if we can. I, let me... Let me Give the listener a preview, and if these sound unbelievable, like sleeping with your eyes open, okay, that tingling means it's working. So the five are reinforcing trust without altering the truth, aiding decisions without limiting choice, triggering action without forcing a response, boosting loyalty without increasing rewards, and improving experiences without changing their duration. And those are, you know, problems that I'm sure most of the listeners are are, are struggling with or wrestling with pretty much and they always will be. Let's let's go to uh, reinforcing trust without altering the truth, which frankly sounds like a good idea. There's there's so many concepts you talk about in the book. I I'll just I'm just going to pull out a few, but one of them is uh, what you call signaling. Mm. So what can we learn about signaling? From uh, Van Halen and Brown M and M's. Wonderful. So signaling is a is a is a really fascinating area to explore all the way back in into sort of biology, right? Um, many of your listeners will be familiar with the famed peacock, yes. sort of the costly signaling of the long train that shows, or the tail, flamboyant, wasteful tail that signals to, to, to female counterparts that it's fit enough to, to waste its energy on such a handicap as this tail that it must be a, 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 a powerful signal of the fitness of the, of the animal. Um, so in, in situations of, of information asymmetry, which is how it might be sort of spoken to in, in academia, small signals like the flamboyance of a tail or, that, or a large signal in that sense, but an evident signal can speak to a sort of unknown um, fitness attributes. And when we look to um, trustworthiness, um, there are often times where we, we can't see what's happening behind closed doors. Um, and and that's where Van Van Halen come 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 in, and um, uh, it's a, a lovely a, a lovely example of an evolved solution. Again, I can't imagine Van Halen had behavioural scientists working with him at the time, but essentially, <laughs> no, every but time I think they, they were motivated by something that went wrong. That's right, and stumble across, and that's what's so. What I find so fascinating about this is through trial and error, and intuition and learning, um, there's, there's so much that can be learned from. In, in again, it, it, from from a rock and roll band to apply to a, to to, a, to an investment bank. But Van Halen, every time they performed, they they filled out a rider. Um, so it's a bit of a contract for the promoters and the and the people setting up the stage and tuning the guitars, right? Everything down from the lighting to to, to which guitar will be tuned with a drop D, um, and and some of these challenges, for example, being thrown a new guitar midway through a, a show that's out of tune, right, can be catastrophic. But you you don't necessarily know that until it's too late. So how can they? How can we have a more evident signal of the trustworthiness of the production um, team? So what they did in their rider or their contract is that they had a, a, a no brown M&Ms clause. 
So, so buried towards the end of the ride, they said, and when we arrived, we'd like a bowl of M&Ms with the brown M&Ms removed. So they knew immediately um, when they came on set into the green room or behind the scenes, if there was a, if there was no bowl of M&Ms or, or, or a bowl of M&Ms without the, with, with the brown M&Ms still in, that they needed to check everything again. So it became this sort of salient, visible signal of unknown attributes. Um, and we see the same, and I, I speak in the, sort of a, a big, a big passion of mine, and what I really enjoy, and I hope comes through the book, is is then connecting this same concept with other things that we might be familiar with, like taking canaries down a coal mine, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a practice that was sort of continued until the 1980s. And the fascinating thing about the canary is that it, it's sort of it's evolved and adapted to fly at great heights over mountains. So it essentially double doses itself with the air around it. It can breathe in oxygen on the outbreath. Um, it's a it's a, a really interesting element of 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 the bird's physiology. Um, and this is great when you're flying over a mountain, but it's terrible when you're stuck down a, a hole around it, surrounded by toxic gas, something that as a human, you might not necessarily notice until it's too late. So just like a brown M&Ms was a powerful signal for Van Halen, when your canary keeled over in the bottom of the, the mine, right, that was a, a signal for you to know, well, actually, it's too dangerous for us to be in there. It becomes that clear evidence signal um, before um, w- w- when other information is, is otherwise unattainable. So really, uh, hopefully, a, a few examples that stimulate our thoughts as to embedding some signals in our product, into our sales pitch, into our, our promotion that help to show unaccessible um, attributes of our product or service. Yes, let's talk about another one that sounds like could have been coined by my dad referring to me, which would be labor illusion. Yes. And write, let's talk about you, right? Uh, by appreciating and honestly deploying the power of the labor illusion, we can ensure that a product's engineered superiority can be more readily identified and trusted by those required. Explain that concept. So the labor illusion is a wonderful concept um, coined by Michael Norton through um, work with Rhyme Well. On operational transparency, a broader concept, um, and and to speak to operational transparency first, as uh, as we seek um, efficiencies in business, we we sort of uh, can be driven to assume that we want to actually distance our customers from our interactivity. We have almost immediate payment when we go to an ATM. When we look on Google, um, we get a response within 0.02 of a second. It's, it's instantaneously fast. Um, but what um, this research is telling us that actually if we can start to show the transparency, the workings that are occurring behind the scenes to help bring this to life, we can boost perceptions of value and, and reinforce perceptions of trust. So just as Google, we might look at travel tips um, or particular flight options, and it gives us a response in 0.02 of a second. What the pair have found with a travel website like Kayak is you can actually boost value and perceptions of trust in the service by slowing this down, by saying, we're now checking the airlines on the eastern seaboard. We're now looking at these particular seat configurations. So we're able to actually tell the customer what we're doing to bring them the best the best offer. And while it might be technically slower, um, by providing this evidence of labor and this transparency into the system that's working behind us, um, then we can boost perceptions of value and trust. 
And we can see that from everything from the Domino's pizza tracker um, that tells you when your pizza is in the oven all the way through to when it's being delivered, just as we can watch a car from BMW being created and, and, and shipped from Munich to Los Angeles. Um, and in this chapter, we explore many different examples that might seem more evident, like a Domino's pizza tracker, for example, but all the way through to subtle cues of, of transparency and labour. Um, an example, great example from Monteith, the New Zealand brewing um, company, um, that uh, their claim, rather than being sort of delivered hot and fresh like, like Domino's Pizza, their central claim was about being um, made from freshly pressed apples and pears. And how do you help convince that this is the truth? Um, and what they did was they, they ran a campaign that had twigs from their orchard that they put in every box of cider. So people would open up the cider and see this twig and think, what's happening here? But it helps to just cue the production process. Mm -hmm. Just as Kayak is saying, I'm now checking all the flights on the Eastern Seaboard, this is an evidence, sort of a part of the production process that's buried in the product. Um, and as uh, many of us will see this, uh, five guys have Idaho potatoes at the front of the door. Right. If you if you didn't have this sort of evidence that we we make our fries fresh, um, that having a stack of potatoes at the door can really signal this transparency. I found the same thing in a pasta shop in Paris, um, where they stack the front door full of flour. Like this isn't by accident. This is to help you believe the process of the or believe the claim that's being made. Um, so, so as as we we spoke to the contradiction, this is about reinforcing trust without changing the truth. Mm -hmm. What are the what are the things that people can't see that they need to see to help us to believe our, our claim? It's a fascinating area of psychology and one that hopefully once you sort of start to see it'll 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 we'll see it everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what happened to this reader. Yeah, I've started like uh, well the elevators we're going to talk about in a minute, but uh, yeah. So the second one was aiding decisions without limiting choice. So just so the listener understands. I'm, I'm pulling out like one question from each of these, which is really frustrating for Sam. So, Sam, you're really holding up quite well. Uh, Good. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, when you talk about aiding decisions without limiting choice, now, I know that if you give people too many choices, they're less likely to make one. Mm. Is that right? That's right. More likely to uh, – while we might think that more choice is better, and naturally we always gravitate to more is more, actually the more choices we have, the more likely we're able to defer, um, we're more likely to regret, mm -hmm. we're more likely to de delay a decision. Yes. So – Ah, oh, well, so many questions. Like, I, hey, let me just pick one out. Talk about using concrete words and images, or what you know, any some other kind of aid to simplify yes. a choice set. Of course. So, so concreteness is really important for us. We find ab abstraction um, is cognitively difficult. Uh, and, and in the book, I sort of write about we, we didn't evolve sort of write, writing sonnets. We evolved sort of drawing cave paintings. You I mean providing these sort of more concrete elements of a story, and they're far mm -hmm. more transferable across culture. Um, so removing abstraction, and that can be the language that we use. We're, we're faster at processing a term like chair than a concept like immigration. Right, we can we can visualize a chair. It has more sort of semantic connections mm -hmm. um, than um, than than immigration. So saying build a wall <laughs> can be a really cognitively efficient way of, of of speaking about an immigration policy. So making 
language more concrete um, helps us to, 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 to navigate these options. But I sort of take it a step further and look at sort of absolute concreteness and, and look at examples where we literally are, are closing the gap even further. For, for example, um, a concept in Japan called Sampuru, when you're looking at restaurants mm-hmm. um, and uh, many people who have walked down the streets of Osaka might have sort of found these beautiful wax replicas of udon noodle soups and wonderful Sunday ice creams. Um, and what they do is they work to remove abstraction. I mean, when I'm looking through the, the menu, I can clearly see what I'm about to what I'm about to purchase because I can see it right in front of us. So it provides a real sort of concrete, um, a concrete reference point. But one of my favourite examples from from that chapter is actually a, a safety device. Um, it's it's called the banana cone. Um, so many of us will have walked around office blocks or airports and seen sort of. Um, slippery when wet signs um, with a, a, a yellow sign. Which requires uh, us to read the words. Requires us to read the words. Requires us to better understand English. Um, and and I, I write about another concept in, the, in this chapter around airports. A fascinating environments for behavioral science because you can't rely on language. Mm-hmm. Right? You can't rely on anyone knowing the, the spoken word. Um, but for the banana cone, it's essentially a, a slippery when wet sign that's shaped like a banana peel. Uh, and while there are some, I've never seen one. Have you not? They're, they're no. wonderful, and and the, and, the, and the, albeit the brand has run the studies, but there have been studies on on again the speed of processing and 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 recall of of, of the signage. But again, it just uses everything, and I love it because it's just a, a smile. It creates a smile in the mind. I mean, it's, it, it's salient, and it's and it helps to communicate. Mm-hmm. But rather than having a simple A-frame, um, have a have a have a banana peel that helps to sort of people see. Okay, that's a that's a slippery surface, and there are cultural associations around that um, but there are other examples that i just mentioned now in in, in airports where you can't rely on language uh, in changi airport when they're encouraging um, commuters or, or travelers to, to to recycle rather than having signage to say this is for plastics this is for cups this is for this is for paper what they do is create big bins shaped like the recyclers they have a, a, a bin that's shaped like a newspaper they have a bin that's shaped like a plastic bottle they have a bin that's shaped like a coffee cup so it just helps people to again more concretely process what we're asking of people there's no excuses now you put a plastic bottle in a big newspaper um you've got bigger issues (laughs) (laughs) but 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 that's sort of taking the extreme of concreteness um, in decision making and as you say you can go all the way down to just using more concrete language if i can't draw it i can't visualize it i find it harder to process Yes, that's great. I had never seen these. They're all on the same page. It's great. Well, just one other question from this, just the second part that just I found yeah. interesting, and that is, in the business-to-business world, certainly, buying is becoming more difficult, and there are more and more people on the committee to make the decision, and mm. a lot of a lot of folks, there's a lot of risk. Uh, I would argue a B2B purchase is more emotional and frightening for people yeah. than buying a, the wrong car for their family. And I want to quote from page 154 and ask you to Uh, talk a little bit about this. It's about chunking information down. Mm -hmm. And uh, you write, while we can chunk information down and break it into stages to make difficult decisions easier, this is a strategy that can also be deployed to reinforce the complexity of decisions at risk of appearing too easy. We can add friction. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about that, I really and, and I'll be back in 45 up. minutes and see how you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you've picked up this example, actually, because it's an area that I 
that I, I think is um, underutilized. Or uh, so, so, so to speak to, to to chunking, as you say, it's sort of breaking down information. We can make it easier for people to make a, um, an IKEA unit by creating it into steps. You know, something complex, we make it easy by chunking it one step at a time. But oftentimes, we're faced with what might appear to be an easy decision. What could appear to be a deceptively binary decision mm-hmm. where there's actually far more complexity behind it or we want people to take more consideration before making it um, and uh, and that can be if we look in the physical realm you can chunk up a train platform um, into designated places that are safe to stand or or places where we say avoid the gap I mean that's the same train platform you've just chunked it up differently to help people consider it differently but but the example that I've that is, that is the example that I've sort of yet to shake as the most powerful here is looking at um, beyond reasonable doubt in court proceedings, um, where you might uh, imagine as a as a John Smith off the street coming in to say well, it's either innocent or guilty. It's a binary decision. Whereas actually what many um, legal firms do is is help to break down the the levels of of, of proof um, that are required before creating a, a guilty verdict. I might just cut to it because it's interesting to read through the – I'll just open the the, the, the chapter here. Really That's on page 156, the burden of proof thing. I just the burden was, of proof. Yeah. And, and when you look at – again, you might say sort of deceptively simple innocent versus guilty, but you can break it down to, well, actually not guilty is proven not guilty, highly unlikely, less than likely, probably not unlikely – Possibly not, maybe not, perhaps suspected, possibly guilty, probably guilty, guilt likely, guilt highly likely, and then you get to guilty beyond reasonable doubt. So so by breaking down not guilty into into what is that, twelve stages, nine <laughs> stages, you help people really consider yeah. um, the, the the burden of guilt. And it's the same and, and I've spoken to some sort of medical friends of mine, and it's certainly not the the primary reason for this, but if you look at sort of hypertension charts and look at blood pressure, they break up normal <laughs> into low normal and high normal. And again, this is just a manufactured line that we can say, well, you're high normal. Um, so if you're, if you're, if you're in the normal realm, you might just be like, I'm normal. I'm cool. I'll go and have that, that burger and chips again. But by, by, div- by chunking normal down to high normal and low normal, um, you help people again, can you sort of consider, um, their, their, their blood pressure in a slightly different way to if it was just all in one category. So, and we can create these chunks. That's the wonderful thing about it. We can help to create these chunks to help people navigate a scenario whether it's standing too close to an oncoming train or or, or veering too likely to 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 um to saying that someone is guilty when there's a uh, they've not surpassed the burden of proof um it's a really fascinating way in which we can chunk this down to to help aid decisions yes and it for me it came to mind the idea of educating your customers helping them mm. which is what we really it works extremely well. You build a lot of trust with folks if you're being impartial and saying, "Look, this is what you need to know." Mm. Uh, and and I saw this, um, you know, but basically teaching folks, you know, of course, there's all kinds of uh, benefits of saying, "Look, we're not a fit for every kind of customer." Here's here's the kind of company you need to find. Yeah. yeah. And then when I saw this burden of proof chart, I had to chuckle to myself as I often do, Sam, because I've been on jury duty a number of times and I never get picked. <laughs> <laughs> So that was the chunking. The contra- the the third one is the one that I found so 
really interesting, particularly for all those salespeople that listen to this podcast, triggering action without forcing a response. Mm. Now, you have a daughter, I believe, That's a young right. daughter, and I have kids, and I was once a kid, and talk about what reactance is. I wish more marketers and salespeople understood what reactance is. It's a, it's a lovely area when we talk about triggering action without forcing a response. And, and, and reactance is really when our attitudinal freedom seems threatened, we have a tendency to, to react against it. Like, um, you're not the boss of me. Exactly. Or, or I, I saw recently, I was watching, um, and now I have a, have a second young daughter. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So I was, what, I was cuddled up watching Mary Poppins again, and it's a shame that I didn't recognize this in the book, but there's that lovely song, Don't Go to Sleep, in Mary Poppins, um, which is another great example of, of reactance. Um, and, and I open this uh, chapter, I think I recall, with um, a classic dinner time routine, encouraging our, our, our eldest to, to eat her vegetables and her requests of me to tell her to stop eating them and she defiantly guzzles them down. You know, don't eat your carrots. And she'll, oh, I'll show you, I'll eat my carrots. Um, so we I think this. we have the same daughter, but go ahead. <laughs> we can see this at the dinner table. But we also see this in in things like um, the war against drugs, where actually while you might think that drug use decreased, drug, drug use spiked. After tragic events like Sandy Hook, you might think that gun sales decline. Actually, you find that with increased threats to ammunition and, and rifles, gun sales increase. I mean, so it's, so it's some unexpected outcomes when uh, our attitudinal freedom seems to be seems to be threatened so mm-hmm. by telling people as you said you might not be a relevant customer for us because of AYZ um that could be the trigger to say well I'll, I'll show you um <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, sh- I'll, sh- I'll show you that um and but all withholding information from someone creating um sort of this itch um we can make it more intriguing um so a lovely another example is uh, more colloquially termed the, the Streisand effect Oh yeah, um, that that they were taking images of the Malibu coastline to track erosion, and and Barbara Streisand um, got wind of this, and and she asked, she sort of took the took the coastal project to court to get them to remove her images of her Malibu palace, and I think before the point, it had been downloaded about six times, and including sort of twice or four times by her own lawyers <laughs> and as soon as she went as soon as she went legal legal on it it was downloaded a million times yeah. um, so by trying to take things away from people you can make it more attractive but the the, the flip side of this for, for for listeners who are in in sales or or, or or marketing actually just reminding people that they're they're free not to accept yes um, but you help. are free but you are free. It's a lovely yes. sort of the, the but you are free effect has been found in in in, in several different um, contexts. Just remind people that they're they're free to decline can give them that sense of attitudinal um, sort of um, f- freedom. That's that's that helps them close the close the close the deal. So at the end of a at the end out of a of a checkout page, just reminding people, but you don't have to accept this. Mm-hmm. Just makes it feel like well, we're not being strong armed to this. If you're strong arming me on this, then I'll I'll, I'll aim to react against you. Yeah, wonderful. Again, it's a really it's a it's a juicy area of under again triggering action without forcing response. You're not you're not telling people to do anything. In fact, if you if you if one thing you're telling them that maybe it's not right for you to help sort of trigger this itch. I'll make the decisions here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, it, I'll eat my carrots. Yes, that's right. So um, 
There were a couple of great lines from page 184 and 85 that I want to mention. The but you are free effect is a successful means of increasing compliance in most contexts by reinforcing personal freedom and empowering our audience. It seems we can trigger people into action. And then on the next page, you write, this is great for the salespeople. When it comes to closing a deal, initiating an ask or triggering an action, it can be as simple as reminding people that they actually don't have to do it <laughs> that makes mm. all the difference. Mm. Oh, bravo, bravo. Well, let's let's go to the boosting loyalty without increasing rewards. So naturally, I think most companies say, well, you got to give more to get more loyalty. Not true, evidently. What are some of the ways that companies can actually boost loyalty without actually increasing the rewards or the value of the rewards? Mm-hmm. Well, several, and as you say this, um, a, a lot of research that's been conducted on traditional loyalty programs. So a lot of work by the Ehrenberg Bass Institute of South Australia. If some of your listeners might be familiar with how brands grow by Byron Sharp, looking at um, so some of the some of the challenges with with, with loyalty programs, and and it's obviously not not universal. But there are again there are psychological inventive principles that we can use. Um, and 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 I, I write in the introduction of this chapter about the, the concept of sunk cost, mm-hmm. um, where it's actually sort of the more invested or the more that we can show that someone is already invested in an outcome, the more we're likely to pursue that. So telling people how long they've been a customer, speaking to people about how, how much they've already invested with a brand can just reinforce the fact that they are loyal or they need to be loyal because they've got this, they've got this sunk cost. Um, but one, one area that sort of, I think the first uh, inventive principle that I explore in most detail is just about commitment devices. Yes. I love it. Um, just get them to raise their hand. Get them to raise their do, to do something. You know, yeah. write, write something in with, with a pen rather than on, 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 a, on, a, on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, can help increase a sense of personal affiliation um, with, a, with a particular brand. But there's an example that's um, – that I sort of gravitate towards in, in, in this chapter around sort of half now, half later. I mean, so giving someone something up front um, with the with the prospect of return in the future. So it's sort of, but it doesn't always need to be um, a meaningful part of the product. Um, it can just be a, a, a cue of the of the of the of the service. And I'll give you sort of a couple of examples here, going from buying coffee all the way through to increasing um, vaccination in children. And the first um, is about that. Um, looking at um, vaccinating children in India, um, and what we're all uh, sort of by now too familiar with the fact that vaccinations aren't always sort of a one-stop shop. We need to, we need to, we need to have several rounds to to be sort of completely vaccinated. And one of the challenges faced in India at the time, uh, and still in many countries across the world, is uh, sort of incomplete vaccinations. Parents um, might take for, for, for one, but not come for a follow-up or, or, or not come at all. Uh, and what, um, and I think it was actually JWT, uh, I, I, don't get, I think it was JWT out of Mumbai. So your, um, your old, um, your, your, your agency in, in Mumbai that did a wonderful campaign um, called Half Toys. And what they would do is they would give children half of a toy on their first vaccination. So give them half an ele- elephant or something. Um, and, the, and it was only redeemed when they came for the second vaccination. 
just a nice way of thinking about about sort of connecting connecting um, the, the, the dots and, and providing a sense of commitment to follow through, and that's where there's, in fairness, it's a it's a it's a meaningful part of the it's half of a toy, um, but I recall in the same sort of solution, the same piece of innovation, a cafe I used to get coffee in in, in Sydney. When the line was too long, um, what they would do is that the baristas would come out and they would just give people a coffee lid. They would come and sort of <laughs> take 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 the order and say, "What will you have? A flat white or a latte?" And they'd write a little L on the on the top of the cap, um, and and so we'd have a whole queue of people standing there with a with a coffee lid. I mean, it's a, sort of a useless part of the product, but by giving us this lid, they'd committed us to the transaction. <laughs> you had skin in the game. Skin in the game. I mean, so it's a really crafty way of committing someone to a, to to an outcome. Even though every time I went to the front, they needed to. I basically needed to order again. But by giving us an element of this, we committed people to following through. So other elements in 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 looking at loyalty, we look at variable rewards. Many of us will be familiar with um, variability of of a particular outcome being more valuable than a, a constant outcome. Um, so again, rather than paying for every use, we can start to create some upside and, and even downside. So now is that example of that would be like at the coffee shop where they give out randomly a free coffee? That's right. So, so, so pret in, in the UK, rather than having a sort of a classic buy, buy 10, get one free, they, they simply empowered their staff to give away a coffee a day um, on, um, or, or a certain quota of, of coffees based on their discretion. They, what they did find, <laughs> that the sort of the funny side, side, side story to this one is that there were sort of more attractive customers um, tended to get more free coffees from, from, from Pret. Yes, I noticed that, Sam, and I have to interject, they were probably also marketing book podcast listeners because marketing book podcast listeners are really good looking people uh, they, well they must be. i've I mean, never received one my partner she's she keeps rocking up with several free coffees from pret i've never got one yeah well and, and, and she's it? very What's attractive saying? and she's probably a marketing book podcast listener but she, i digress she's doing, she's doing better than me no but so looking at variable rewards also through to a concept known as a gold gradient effect so so uh, and and several examples of how that's come into life in in academia and in sort of in the wild so we can start to break down loyalty just as we can look at aiding trust, looking at aiding decisions, triggering action, we can start to deconstruct loyalty in ways that don't always sort of require um, a, a greater sort of investment or incentive. There are some psychological levers that we should look to first. Yes. So last one is improving experiences without changing their duration. And I guess uh, most folks are thinking, no, we just need to be faster, like the trains you talked about with Rory the yes. TED Talk he did where they, they were trying to figure out how to make the trains faster from uh, the UK to France, I believe it was. That's and right. So they were trying to engineer or something to make it like 40 minutes faster. And he said, look, if you just have fashion models walking around the train giving out champagne, people will actually want the train to go <laughs> slower. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that Rory. You know, you just – what are you, you going to do with that guy? But I want to zero in on this one part that has to do with memory. This is really important, and we can then we can talk about the peak end if you don't mind. But you write yeah, that, uh, and this came up in another book uh, from Impressed to Obsessed, all about customer experience by John Pico, which was on the show recently. You write to truly understand how we might improve experiences without changing their duration. The last piece of our puzzle is understanding the role of memory. Yeah. Talk about the importance of memory 
on creating a great customer experience, let's say. Absolutely. So, so to, 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 if I can take it up a step, I think one of the biggest um, challenges with experience and, and, and improving experience without changing duration is um, confusing clock time and brain time. Yes. Um, we assume that, and this is, I start the chapter looking at differences in perception of time across um, across the animal kingdom um, and 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 what can help to sort of speed up or slow down time in humans perceptions of time and and that can be around novelty it can be about stress the more stressed we are time tends to slow down the more um, more comfortable and familiar that we are time tends to to, to speed up and uh, and that helps us to understand so this there is a variability in perception of time well and and just um, to add Sam, when I read this part of the book, I now understand much better the expression "time stood still." Yeah, when somebody went through something very traumatic or exciting, they they say, "Oh, time!" It, it's like time stood still. Yeah, or your attentional resources are, 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 are focused on the challenge at hand. You know? yeah. Whereas when you're in a, your, your brain can switch off, and when your brain can switch off, then time time tends to, to, to speed up. Mm-hmm. But when we look at memory, and this is where um, Daniel Kahneman's research, and many of your listeners, I think, hopefully, all of your listeners yeah. will be familiar with the Nobel Prize winning psychologist Daniel Kahneman, um, looking at the difference between um, sort of. Uh, ex- experience time and remembered time. You know, so the time that we experience moment by moment, and and the memory that we have of that experience that lasts forever. And and what we what the, what research is telling us that actually it's our memory of the experience um, that is more meaningful in in driving future outcomes. So while we might be focused on moment by moment experience, actually what we should also be considering is what is the memory of that experience that's 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 most important to live us um, to, to to leave with to leave with people because that's what we take away. Yeah. And Kahneman's shown this from everything from ice bucket challenges with people holding their hands in freezing cold water that starts to take us towards the, the, the peak end effect, um, all the way through to a beautiful analogy of listening to music. Now, if you imagine listening to a record for, for three minutes and someone sort of screeches for the last 10 seconds and, and pretends they're a DJ, and, and people might say, well, you ruined, the, you ruined the whole experience of that music. But actually, you listen to two and a half minutes of beautiful orchestration glory it's just someone ruined the end they impacted your memory of the experience so it's important to decouple this and that's where we explore in this chapter and i'm going to do my best to make sure that this interview ends well so that people won't you know, <laughs> we have a beautiful big end um, <laughs> think but, badly but of you we start to think about what are the what are the moments um that 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 shape memory not just improve the average you know, in so just improve every every living moment actually you can start to think what are the the elements that 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 shape our memory of an outcome that stand yeah. out um, and either that's a, a, a huge peak or the way an experience might end um, is, is is certainly critical for, for for memory yeah let me add to that page 252 you write by recognizing the moments that matter most yeah peak end effect tells us that you really don't need to put a lot of weight on the duration or even mm. the total average of an experience just on how bad or good it was at its peak and mm. whether it ended well. And this is where, as a, as a, a creative um, industry, we can start to, what are the, what are the, what are the points that we can really bring, bring our muscle? Um, there's a lovely example from the book, um, The Power of Moments by the Heath Brothers. Mm-hmm. 
speak about um, the Magic Castle Hotel in Los Angeles. It's, I think, like high up the rankings of, on TripAdvisor, even though it's actually a fairly sort of rundown, rundown, rundown hotel. But what they do is they have a popsicle hotline. I mean, so when you when you buy the pool, there's a there's a little red phone that you you pick up and you you can order free popsicles and, and a waiter will come down with a with a with a popsicle on a silver platter and it's just this moment that's that's sort of unforgettable, um, and and so you invest in in certain elements of an experience rather than improving the thread count and the linen you're in that that might have a marginal impact, creating these memorable moments. You've got the sort of the press for champagne button in Bob Bob Ricard's Soho Hotel. Mm-hmm. You've got the ludicrous mode in Tesla. Every sports car has like a sports mode, but Tesla has ludicrous mode. You, you, you just have fun with elements rather than increasing the average of an experience. You create these peaks and, as you say, ensure that they, they end well. Um, yes. And that's where uh, there's a whole, a whole chapter of, of looking at sort of the or a whole element of the book looking at endings. And, and the, the quip at the beginning is, I mean, there are very few sort of notes about the, 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 the first few nights aboard the Titanic <laughs> that were amazing, <laughs> right? Um, uh, there we are again, laughing at the misfortune of others. Did, yeah. did, didn't last the test of time. So how an experience ends, and again, this is sort of the, the, the moments that last, that, that shift it from our focus from the experiencing self to the remembering self, um, to look at the difference between brain time and clock time, we can start to invest our resources more effectively for the brain. Yes, and it's interesting. You talk about the uh, Magic Castle Hotel. I've I've heard of it. I'd never stayed there, but you write that it's uh, it doesn't resemble anything close to a castle <laughs> at all. That's right. It's really just an old converted apartment block with a small pool, lots of stairs, and no elevator. <laughs> but they have that popsicle phone. But it is magical. Yeah, it is magical. Yeah, it's no castle, but it's certainly magical, Um, and and I think we should. That's a that's a marketers and product designers should salivate at these opportunities for distinctiveness, Mm -hmm. Um, and and not investing to take every element from a six to a seven, but finding a couple of tens that you can sprinkle throughout. Yeah, Um, or at least start with those. Totally, totally, and (laughs) and that's where again, as as marketeers, um, this is how brands are built. Right. I mean, um, Tesla, Tesla spends as much time focusing on the, the, how the doors open than how the batteries work. I mean, just because they're unique or, 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 or dog mode, I think they have. <laughs> I mean, just these, these fun elements that stand out in the mind, and that's what we need. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think it firstly be understanding our insatiable appetite for the radical and the revolutionary. So understanding that we sort of naturally gravitate towards bringing sort of big ideas for big problems and, and more importantly for evolutionary ideas, this, this gravity towards novel solutions for novel problems. Um, so understanding why we have this pull, but, but also recognizing that, that radical and revolutionary uh, innovation is far rarer than we might think. And actually, there's a, a vast world of adapted solutions that, that we can now better see through the lens of behavioral science and, and systematically innovate to, to be far more effective and, and, and also creative in, in our outcomes. So that's, that's sort of the, the key thing for, for, for me. There, there is space for radical innovation, but it's, it's far less than we might think. Um, and the evolutionary processes can be infinitely more powerful when applied um, mindfully. 
Well, you made that very clear, at least to this reader. And I, I you know, I couldn't help but think there's a lot more wheel reinventing than I realized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what's one thing a listener could do today just to put in action one of the ideas from your book that we've talked about to, to get them, like handing that coffee lid that's to the, right to the people at the coffee shop. Oh, I think the one thing that's inescapable is is seeing these solutions around us. Um, and I write in the conclusion it, it can become a bit of a, an affliction once you once you have this new lens by which you see the world. It's near impossible not to walk around everywhere and and see ideas latent in the environment. So I think bringing in um, out of category or out of context examples. Um, to help solve solve your problem, and whether that's borrowing from a pizza tracker or, as you say, learning from a a, a, a cafe that gives you a cup lid to keep you invested in a line, um, there are there are solutions to to many of our problems all around us every day, and now we have the ability to see them um, more readily. Yes, uh, well, that's what's happened to me, Sam, and thanks, <laughs> because now I'm even more irritating to the people around me. <laughs> Pointing no, out all every, these tricks. Every time I go on holiday, stop the car. I've got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, pretty soon the 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 girls are going to be asking your uh, that's right your wife what were you thinking. So looking back, what books have have most inspired your work and career? I know you mentioned uh, Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, uh, thinking I think fast I, and that, slow is probably yeah. one of them. That would be and 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 there's and even Kahneman has has updated elements of 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 that book with respect to priming studies and and there are elements of 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 thinking fast and slow that have been discussed and disputed but I think for me certainly uh, it's a book that I remember I remember coming into work early every morning with that book just to have a sort of dedicated time to to, to leaf through it and take copious notes and that's that's certainly been a a, a key text mm. um, and and obviously a, a, a huge influence. On our, on our category, I think the work of Dan Ariely, um, captured in his his books like Predictably Irrational, I think really valuable. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we've spoken a lot about Rory, but I've I've um, I've been very fortunate to, um, to 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 work in the same, firstly in the same organisation as Rory, and then after several years, work in the in the same office and 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 consider him a sort of certainly a, a, a key mentor and friend. But Rory himself and 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 his book alchemy uh, a, a huge influence on on this book and and certainly my thinking and our organization's thinking for sure well let me tell you something there sam tatum an employee of ogilvy if i were to ever have this question asked of me and i won't because i'm not going to interview myself for this <laughs> podcast because i haven't written a book but what books have most inspired your working career for me it's two books and one of them was ogilvy on advertising yes a wonderful. I read it back in the 1980s after I came back from overseas, uh, got out of the army, and read that book and said, "That is what I want to do." And it's mm. like you're talking about thinking fast and slow. The right book at the right time in your life, maybe you're, even more so, looking back, can have an enormous impact. You're you're right, actually, and I remember even even earlier. Um, tipping Point. I remember sitting on a Mexican beach reading Tipping Point by Ma- and Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, those are two other other books that have been influential in in me um, moving from a, what is a sort of a classic career in a classic career where I mean, that doesn't never exist, but in organizational psychology and moving into into the creative field and marketing and advertising. Outliers and Tipping Point were also even earlier than. Um, than than the availability, I think, of of things like thinking fast and slow, and and certainly my awareness of even the the field of behavioral economics. Um, so 
So if, if you've not read Tipping Point and Out or Outliers and, mm-hmm. and Blink, another great book, right. Blink Label, um, he's, he's a big influence on my very early career. And he's got a new one out that I want to read about uh, called The Bomber Mafia. Which, That's right. I've not I've not read it myself either. But he's one of those where you just go ahead and buy whatever they write. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you yeah. know it's good. like the Heath Brothers. Uh, Wonder, like, wonderful uh, books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Made to Stick. Made to Stick is another one, and and and, and there's uh, elements of Made to Stick that have that have uh, inspired elements of, of evolutionary ideas as well. So um, that's another great book. Well, you were very generous by uh, you know attributing a lot of the your work to others and how you were inspired by their books. So Good. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or maybe looking forward to reading? Uh, I'm looking forward. So I've uh, Richard Shotton, some of your listeners might be familiar with Richard Shotton, wrote The Choice Factory, um, a great book and sort of democratizing behavioral science and marketing. I, I think he's recently submitted his second book. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And he's a, he's a, um, a, a, good, a good friend and has been, a, again, another influence on the creation of evolutionary ideas as well. So I'm looking forward to that coming through. And same publisher, I believe. Same publisher. So Richard actually knew I, I reached out to him several years ago about his journey and, and he sort of helped pave the way um, with Harriman House and, and has been a, a good sort of sounding board on what is a when, when you're sort of working full time and, and have a busy family, like how do you, how do you manage to, to write a book and, and what, are the, what are the tricks and, and, and things to miss? So Richard's been certainly helpful there and I'm looking forward to his second book. Oh, good. Does it have a title yet? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Okay, well, we'll be on the lookout for that. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned to your LinkedIn profile, to the Ogilvy site, either the Australian one or the <laughs> Ogilvy London, where we can, we can include both. It depends on where you are. <laughs> Ogilvy London is probably the best for now. Okay, and uh, your, your Twitter account. And, Thank you. Uh, a, a word to you, dear listener, please. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Sam and congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or however you can uh, get in touch with him. The guests on the show just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners who've listened to the interview, some of them buy the books and start a you know a conversation. They, they really – Absolutely. I, every week I hear from authors saying – you know how much they, how much they get a kick out of it, and if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast and your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Evolutionary Ideas: Unlocking Ancient Innovation to Solve Tomorrow's Challenges. The author is Sam Tatum. Sam, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 